Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the new paid membership option that we recently rolled out. This option is meant for people that have been getting value from the podcast and want to enable us to keep producing it in a more sustained way. It's also for people that want extra stuff, such as bonus content, a Slack room that's vibrant and filled with people tackling climate change from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives, as well as a host of programming and events that get organized in the Slack room. We also have a virtual town hall once a month where you can get a preview of what's to come and provide feedback and input on our direction. We'll be adding more membership benefits over time. If you want to learn more, just go to the website, myclimatejourney.co. And if you're already a member, thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is David Hardy, CEO of Offshore North America at Orsted. Orsted's the world's leading offshore wind developer. They were also the first European offshore wind developer to enter the U.S. market back in 2015. Since then, they've become the country's largest and most successful offshore wind developer with six projects representing nearly 3,000 megawatts of energy development. We have a great discussion in this episode about David's career, the 12 years that he spent working in renewables, what led him down that path, and how the landscape has changed from when he first entered to today. We talk about offshore wind, why it matters, where it is in the deployment cycle, how that differs in the European market versus here in the US. And then we get into Orsted and David's new role, the task in front of them as they gear up to expand their presence in the US market, some of the barriers that are holding them and offshore wind back, and, and also some of the things that could change to unlock faster progress. I learned a lot in this one, and you probably will too. David Hardy, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thanks. I'm so excited to have you. This is kind of a weird one since I know you as a dad from school first and as an offshore wind executive second, but it's great to have you on the show as an offshore wind executive. Yeah, thanks. Agree. I, I remember when we first met, actually before I even met you, and I people asked me what I did when I first moved back to Boston or meeting friends at the park school, I, I heard people say, oh, you have to meet Jason Jacobs. You have to meet Jason Jacobs. So it's, it's been a good couple conversations with you and glad now that we're doing this podcast. Yeah. Well, I used to see you more back when we were allowed to see people. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> before we get into it, I should say congrats on the recent promotion. I saw the news. Was it last week or the week before? Yeah, October 22nd. So coming on two weeks, but yeah, pretty recently. Thank you. Uh-huh. And so you were just promoted to be CEO of North America, correct? CEO of Offshore North America, yeah, at Orsted. Yeah. Awesome. And maybe that's a good segue. So tell me a bit about Orsted and then a bit about Offshore North America as well. Sure. Orsted, it used to be called Danish Oil and Natural Gas Company, Dong. It's not the most translatable name over in, in the US, but it was Dong Energy. It was a big Danish utility, basically. And in 2000, and well, really in 1997, they started with the very first offshore wind farm. And in the last 10, 15 years, they've transitioned completely to become a green super major. So we're 
right now the world's largest offshore wind energy producer. We also do onshore wind, solar, and storage and have big ambitions in both. I'm responsible for the offshore wind business in North America. Great. And how long have you worked in offshore wind and, and how did that come about? Yeah, I kind of started my career in the U.S. Navy and then worked more in kind of high-tech industrial part of society. And in my mid-30s, I had a little midlife crisis and decided that I wanted to do something a little bit more meaningful and kind of networked into the wind industry at a wind turbine OEM called Vestas, which happens to be also be a Danish company. So I've been in renewable energy for about 11 years. But my last job before this job, I was running a wind turbine company in Germany, and we ended up selling that company to Siemens Gamesa, another large wind turbine manufacturer. And my wife and I wanted to move back to the US and we wanted to put some roots down in, in the Boston area. So we came back here without a job, but I saw the US offshore wind business emerging and thought it would be an interesting place to come. And thankfully I was able to secure a role with Orsted starting in March of this year. And I came in as the president and COO of this business. And then two weeks ago, I was promoted to be the CEO running the whole show here. I feel like maybe the kid birthday party that you told me about this role was one of the last places I went before lockdown. And then it still feels like it's that same month of lockdown, but it's been like, I don't know, six or seven months. So Yeah, my son's birthday was February. We went in lockdown in early March. So I, I think you're right. I hadn't even probably started the, the role yet. I probably was telling yeah, you that I was going to, but I, I bet I hadn't even started. So Yeah, oh, that's, gosh, that's crazy. And what a time to start a big new job as well. Yeah, even the old job was a big job. And it's been interesting trying to do it remotely and onboard remotely, learn the business remotely, but it's been a good run. It's been good so far. And so in the 12 years that you've worked in renewables, I guess, talk a bit about what the landscape was like when you entered renewables and maybe how it's evolved and what some of the differences are as we sit here in 2020. Sure. So I came into onshore wind kind of in the 2000 and late 2009, 2010 time period. It was going already. 2008 had been a dip, still a little immature, I would say. But then 2010 through 16, when I was working in the US or 17, Onshore wind really, really picked up and was growing at a, a good pace and globally also still growing and has been growing for a long time. Solar came on during that time, especially commercial solar got much bigger. Solar was a little bit more distributed in the beginning, but now you've got big power plant sized solar projects. So onshore wind and solar in the US have been, I would say are fairly mature and pretty big business already. But offshore wind was started in Europe and there's about maybe 22 gigawatts of offshore wind in Europe now, about eight in Asia Pacific, primarily in Taiwan. In North America or in the US, we have 42 megawatts. So when I say gigawatt, that's a thousand megawatts. So you have 22,000 megawatts in Europe, 8,000 in Europe, and we have 42 here. And four years ago, we had- And that's not 42,000, that's 42. 42, yeah. yeah, 42 megawatts, yeah. It's a small project off the coast of Block Island called the Block Island Wind Farm, which Orsted owns. And then there's a pilot project off the coast of Virginia that Orsted built for Dominion Energy, who's the local utility down there. And we did that this year. Four months ago, there were 30 megawatts only. We added 12 this year by finishing that Dominion project. So it's very early stages for offshore wind in the US. But at the same time, it's a huge, huge potential and a, a really exciting place to be, I think. So. Why do you think the U.S. has been lagging behind so significantly? I think there's a couple things. I think in Europe, 
you have a little bit more land density, you know, population density on the land. So it's hard to build big solar and wind farms. We've got a lot of big solar and wind farms, you know, out in Texas and the Midwest for wind and Southeast and Southwest for, for solar. And the price of onshore wind and solar has come down massively. I mean, we're, if you're a Malcolm Gladwell fan, we're w- well past the tipping point on our renewables cost effective. And anybody who's talking about coal still is really just, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's, we're way, way past that point. But offshore wind was still pretty expensive. It started to gain traction in Europe because of the land density issue. And some of the countries were subsidizing and paying a higher price to kind of get the technology going. But then you started to see the price of offshore wind really coming down in Europe as well. And now offshore wind is at grid parity in Europe. So basically the same price they're selling without a subsidy. Sometimes they're selling, you know, at a merchant price. When the U.S. saw that, some of the state leadership, they saw the opportunity because where do we have a whole bunch of load along the East Coast, Philly, D.C., New York, Boston, et cetera. And where do we also have a land density problem? Those same places. So it's hard to get wind energy from Kansas to Boston, right? But if you're going to shut down nuclear power plants, shut down coal plants, it's not easy to get the low cost natural gas here because you have to pipe it. Then offshore wind starts to make sense because you can build big offshore wind farms. You got the space, you don't have the visual impact. And if the price is competitive, then it becomes an attractive solution. So you started to see state leaders try to create demand for offshore wind. And that, that's what's been going on the last three, four years. And do these offshore wind projects vary greatly in size and scope? Or is there kind of a standard package, if you will, as it relates to size, components, things like that? Yeah, so they started out smaller. The first couple projects, obviously, the Block Island one was 30 megawatts. The first couple so-called commercial scale ones, we have two of them one called South Fork Wind, which is off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, powering into Long Island. It's about 130 megawatts. And then we have a project down in Maryland called Skipjack Wind that's 120 megawatts. So they're not too big. But then you saw this big change happen where now the project sizes are really, I would say, 800 to 1200 megawatts each. And the states have created first off, the federal government went out and did a bunch of surveying of the continental shelf on the East Coast and designated some areas to be areas for development of offshore wind, and they auctioned off the leases. So there's now some federal leases that are owned by private companies. We have the largest lease area. And then the states did the demand for energy. And so that created the mechanism that allowed the process to get going. So we've got a place to build them, and we've got demand for the power. Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, et cetera, ran these power auctions and different companies won. So now we've got offtake contracts but we've actually, we still got to get through the development cycle, get the projects built, and then operate them, et cetera. So that's the phase that we're in right now. So there's actually been about six gigawatts, 6,000 megawatts of power that's been awarded. None of it's built yet. I'll get to why in a second. Orsted has about half of that power offtake. So we're the world's largest offshore wind energy company. We're also North America's largest offshore wind energy company by whatever measure you want to make. We've got the only spinning assets, we've got the largest lease area, and we've got the most offtake awarded. So, Well, I am not a big company person, nor am I an offshore wind person, nor have I ever had a big executive role in a big company like you, but I'm trying to visualize. So if Orsted is the 
largest in offshore wind globally and the largest in the US, but the US is nascent and just getting going. And you're brought in as the head of North America for offshore wind. So essentially the biggest of what's around, but in this very nascent market that you're now charted with growing, where do you start? How do you think about prioritization in terms of what projects, how many projects, where the projects go, who the partners are? It just seems so, it's such green fields, but also just so so daunting. How do you think about that? It is a big company. We're probably like 5,000 people, but a, a market cap of 45 billion euro. We've got about something like eight gigawatts of offshore wind spinning around the world right now and a plan to build 15 gigawatts by 2025 and even more by 2030. So we've got the kind of resources and infrastructure and know-how to know how to build an offshore wind farm. I think we've built 29 of them primarily in in Europe and off the UK, Denmark, Germany, Netherlands, and then uh, in Taiwan as well. What we need to figure out is how do we make it work here in the US? And like I said, we've got the demand now from the states. All these states have created standards for a certain number of megawatts that they want to procure from offshore. And they've basically laid out the schedule for the bids. And in some cases, they've run those auctions and we've won. But then you've got this whole development process that you have to do to actually bring these projects forward. So you've got your federal permit because the turbines are sitting out in federal water. You've got state permits. You've got onshore substations. You've got you know all of your uh, EPC activities, engineering, procurement, construction activities, just making sure the business case works, et cetera, et cetera. So we're at that stage now where we've got these five projects where we want offtake and we're in the development stage and just trying to make sure that what we bid, we can actually execute on. On top of all that, and I don't mean to go on and on, but building the offshore wind farm, it's tricky. We haven't done it in the US before, but Orsted knows how to do it. But what we're also tasked with is bringing this industry to bear here. And these states are paying a premium for offshore wind because they want the economic development that will come and the jobs that will come from this whole new industry. So we're not only building offshore wind farms, but we're developing local supply chains. We're training organized labor to participate in this industry. We're building the infrastructure at the piers, ships, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it's pretty, there's a lot of things on my plate, to be honest. And the... I'm not even sure if I'm going to use the right lingo here, but the customer for these projects, is it the state or is it the utilities? Who buys them and how do those mechanics work? And also, does that vary widely from project to project or is it more or less cookie cutter? Right now, the states are procuring the power and then they force the utilities to buy the power or else we get what's called an OREC, an an offshore renewable energy credit. And then we sell the power in the spot market, but we're trued up kind of by this OREC. So if if we sell the power for higher, the state keeps the difference. If we sell the power for lower, they pay us the difference. So it's kind of like a contract for differences OREC concept. But our OREC is fixed. It's a little more nuanced in certain markets because we've got some basis risk from the spot price that we're selling at to what the where the OREC reference point is. But in general, it's regulated offtake, I would call it, and the states are, are regulating it. Uh-huh. And when you look at the U.S. landscape, how do you prioritize which states to invest in and spend your time? Yeah, really good question. I mean, of course, we've got our leases where they are, so that drives it a little bit. And then we have relationships with the different states, and some states are valuing some things and some states are, are valuing others. So Massachusetts, for example, 
has been very clear that they just want the lowest price offshore wind they can get. They don't want the impact to their ratepayers. They don't want to pay a big premium for offshore wind. So when they run their auctions, it's very clear that they want a lean, mean setup. Some other states have seen it as a little bit of a combination of kind of green, clean energy, but willing to pay maybe a little bit more of a premium for other benefits. So if we're going to bring local supply chains and jobs, they'll pay a little bit more for that. And so we're looking at what are our strengths, what's our competition, where are our leases, and kind of what makes sense for us. And we're constantly reviewing the opportunities that we have to see where we should go. And when you think about the process as it stands today, I mean, obviously, as a company of your scale, you've probably gotten sophisticated at navigating the process. But stepping outside of yourselves, is the process efficient as it stands? Or is there a lot of artery clogging and unnecessary hoops to jump through for you guys or for any company to try to do business in this area? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. I mean, we're really long on offshore wind in the US in the long term and even in the medium term. But in the short term, it's pretty clunky right now because the federal permitting process has been really not efficient. So no large scale offshore wind farms have achieved their federal permit yet. One of our competitors, Vineyard Wind, as the name of the project, and it's owned by uh, CIP, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, and Avangrid, which is the division of Ibadrola, a big Spanish green energy company. They have the first project and they expect to get their federal permit later this year. That permit's been delayed about 18 months from when they expected to get it. And that's created a logjam for all the rest of us. So we have permits that there's a two-year NEPA process that you have to go through to get your federal permit. There's a process where the you submit your application, which takes a couple of years to develop. You have to do all the surveys and it's called a COP application construction and operation plan that goes through. It's a stack of paper, like three, four inches thick of how you're going to construct it, how you're going to operate it, how it all works, the environmental impacts, everything. You submit that package and then they usually are supposed to take about six months to review the package for completeness. And then they issue something called a notice of intent that they're going to start the process, the NEPA process. And then hopefully two years later, you come out of that process with your permit. And we've been waiting now for, again, about 18 months from when we submitted our application on a few of our early projects to even get the NOI. And we don't know when the NOI will be led. It's been delayed in part for maybe some good reason. The offshore wind industry really picked up at a pace faster than maybe the federal government anticipated. And they wanted to pause these one-off permitting processes and do a cumulative impact study to see what the cumulative impact of a whole bunch of offshore wind would be. And you know that was frustrating for us at first, but we got our head around that and thought that that probably did make sense and it would maybe pave the road for a smoother per-project permit in the future. But now that cumulative impact study results basically came out in June of this year, and we still haven't seen the federal permitting process restart for our projects or our competitors' projects. So the whole federal permitting process is not efficient. And then it's natural that when you're starting up a new industry, you know, we're trying to figure out what we can do locally, what we can do nationally. You know, do we have local supply chain? What's the price premium? Local labor? etc. And so there's a lot of work to be done there. And then there's a whole bunch of other just logistical things like how do we get the power on shore? How do we get it integrated into the grid? All that's new, right? And these are big projects now. We're Like I said, we have 3000 megawatts of offtake that we need to get on shore and get integrated. So it's a lot of work to do on that side. And as you think about that permitting and policy landscape, 
how much are you thinking about in the context of a specific project and permitting versus actually broader government policy around whether it's mandates or subsidies or incentives or that kind of thing? Do, do those matter for a company like yours? And if so, how active are you and is Orsted in helping to drive some of that stuff? No, I think it's a great question. And we don't want to just come in, build a project and, and leave, right? I mean, this is our core business and we want to build sustainably and we want to leave behind a sustainable industry and grow it. And right now it's kind of mid-Atlantic up to Northeast, but you could conceive of a lot more there, but also going further south, the Gulf, West Coast, et cetera. So it could be a lot more to come. So we're advocating both at the federal level for streamlining this federal permitting process, for example, also for some other, I don't want to say incentives, but in some cases, incentives, there's some tax incentives. There's also some things that would be helpful if we had grid infrastructure or labor agreements at kind of a national level. So we're working through stuff like that. And then at the state level, there's a lot of local discussions on policy. And then, you know, even at the local level, we have to integrate our projects. We have to land cables. We have to build substations, et cetera. So we're looking at it in regards, both on a bespoke project basis, but also on the broader, bigger landscape to enable the industry. And as the market leader, we kind of see that as one of our roles. And I have a similar question around the RFPs, because when the states put out RFPs, then if the ones that you guys think are well-aligned that are worth going after, you go and respond. But is it mostly responsive to requests or is there time spent educating the states on why they should be putting forth more RFPs in this area? And if so, what are some of the ways that you and or Orsted go about raising that visibility and awareness for offshore wind and the benefits? Yeah, again, probably both, right? I mean, of course, when an RFP is let, we're in the process of, we just responded to a big RFP in New York two weeks ago, and we've got one that we're going to respond to in early December for New Jersey. So we're all hands on. These are big, complex RFP responses that require a lot of work. I mean, we're talking about, Jason, like a 1000 megawatt project is like 5 billion in capital, right? So it's when you put your bid in, you got to make sure the math is going to work when it's all said and done. And so, you know, it's quite a bit of work to respond to the RFPs, but at the same time, we see it as a partnership. So we're spending a lot of time with NYSERDA in New York to help educate them on what the industry needs and, and how their RFP should be structured, et cetera. And the same with the other states. And quite frankly, even, you know, at the federal level as well, and depending on this election outcome that we, we still don't know here on November 4th at almost 5 p.m., Obviously, we're influencing both Congress, the administration, the presidential staff, et cetera, BOEM, the Department of Interior. So we're, we're active in all those spaces. It's quite a heavy stakeholder management role and company, to be honest. So. And do these projects tend to be controversial when they come up? And if so, what are some examples of themes or hot buttons that people or entities or governments tend to push on? Yeah, they're generally further offshore, so there's not a huge visual impact, but there still can be some. So we face some challenge down in Delaware and Maryland for visual impact. One of our projects down there, I think it's 17, 19 miles offshore, something like that. So it's we're talking about a couple inches on the horizon. It's not a big giant turbine like a 100 yards offshore or something, but still people have some aversion. So there's a little bit of that. There's some ENGOs that really want to make sure that we're not harming the environment in other ways with mammals, fish, et cetera. So we, we try to take a lot of responsibility on that. 
commercial fishermen are a vocal opponent. Both the fishermen out in the area were, they were there first kind of, and, you know, we're trying to be equal stewards of the sea and create solutions for them. I can talk about some of the things that we've done with for commercial fishermen, but also shell fishermen and certain markets where that's big, we could be impacting their livelihood. So they eject. And then I would say a little bit on the onshore side with the cable landing, sometimes there's some people who are opposed to it and, and the cable route and this onshore substation. We try to do generally underground cabling, but it's a big cable, right? You're bringing a lot of power. So we do a horizontal drilling underground, bring the cable in and then come up and go to our substation. And we've had, you know, some our very first project we're building right now, this South Fork project, it's coming into East Hampton, the Hamptons part of New York. It's not an industrial area, right? This is a people's resort, second homes. And so we've had quite a bit of work there to find the best solution for bringing the cable on and putting the substation somewhere. So, And so it, it sounds like maybe tangentially the general public, but the general public does not tend to be a core stakeholder. Is that a fair statement? I think the general public is a a core stakeholder. I mean, and in general, when we do a survey of Long Island people and say, do you support offshore wind? We get an overwhelmingly high response or same thing with Delmar Peninsula and Maryland and, and Delaware. But then there'll be like these subgroups that are maybe a little more affected by the solution and the project. And so we try to work with them as well. So we create community benefits agreements and you know, do other things to try to, to compensate people for the inconvenience or whatever. So same thing with the fishermen, you know, we proactively as an industry change the layout to be more spread out. So we have a one nautical mile by one nautical mile layout out at sea for the turbines and in the grid so that the fishermen can go through the wind farms and fish in the wind farms and they can navigate through there. And compared to the rest of the world, that's much wider. So we're giving up the benefit of the lease area where if we could put the turbines in more densely, we could theoretically develop more and make more money out of that. But we're trying to find that balance. And we also do other things for fishermen, fishermen compensation and other research grants and a lot of other things that we do. So, And given that you're fairly new to the role and, and offshore wind is fairly new to the U.S. or at least or North America, or at least early on, as we've been discussing, if you look out, say, one years and five years and 10 years, where do you hope that Orsted is at those milestones in offshore wind in North America? Yeah, one year, I mean, we're still continuing to build our team here. We're still hopefully working through these so-called boundary conditions, we call it, which is these development stage stuff, getting our permits, getting our interconnect agreements, getting our real estate leases, et cetera. But having, you know, hopefully the federal permitting process is kickstarted. We're having more confidence that that sustainable process, maybe in one year, we've won a few more bids. So we are, our pipeline's even bigger, which gives us more leverage and confidence to continue to make investments in the supply chain or convince our suppliers to come over and set up shop in the U.S. Five years, we hopefully have three plus gigawatts built out there and we're developing and constructing more. And But we're, we enter a stage of operating these, these wind farms. And 10 years out, I would hope that the industry, by 2030, I hope that there's 20 gigawatts of offshore wind spinning in the U.S. And the markets have expanded beyond just this mid-Atlantic Northeast. We've got other lease areas and we're looking at, at other options for offshore wind, either on the West Coast or South or wherever. So, And for any entrepreneurs out there that are thinking about building things from zero, are there innovations that would be helpful to enabling this offshore wind deployment to accelerate that don't exist today that you think 
outside companies might be able to help with? We've actually got a, an innovation hub down in our Rhode Island office. We've got offices kind of spread throughout the markets that we work in, but we've created an innovation office where we're actually you know, looking for entrepreneurial opportunities and helping enable them as well, either through applications or even in some cases, co-investing to try to bring some things to bear. And so there's a lot of things out there around maybe some of the ways to do the the site investigations right now, we have vessels going out, mapping the ground floor of the ocean. And we're talking about literally hundreds of square miles of ocean floor. There's things that can be done for mammal monitoring, bird monitoring. There's things that can be done on the O&M side, operation and maintenance side. It's not like an onshore solar or wind farm where if something breaks, you just hop in the truck and drive out there and you got your technician fixing. It's a big event to put people on a ship, go out to the wind farm, and fix the wind farm. So anything you can do, you know, there's a lot of stuff already, but anything you can do with drones for monitoring and things like that, there's a lot of people looking at things like that. So remote monitoring, intelligence around the turbines, again, a lot of stuff being done on the digitization side by the OEMs themselves, but there's plenty of opportunities still, I would say. And then same question on the policy side, whether it be at the federal level or the state level, if you had a magic wand and you could make one change, or I guess a handful, if you had more than one, do you, I mean, do you have anything top of mind that you know that you would do if given the power? Yeah, I'm kind of a simple guy. Like I think the NEPA process, is, it's a good process, right? We want to build sustainably. So we want to make sure that we've thought about things and that we're taking care of the environment, et cetera. So I'd like to just see that process work and have some confidence around that. Likewise, probably some continued investment in jobs training. A big part of this is the jobs potential, the economic benefit of bringing this industry. It's obviously a a green kind of left agenda, right? Climate change is real. We can produce clean power. We can produce it in big amounts. Offshore wind has a higher capacity factor than onshore wind or solar. So it's a little bit more of a baseload like product can replace coal and nuclear, but it's also like it's infrastructure. So it's big metal monopiles and big towers and blades and it ships and ports. And and so there's a whole huge green collar kind of agenda here. And to the extent that the federal government sees the benefit of, of investing in that workforce and investing in that supply chain, there really is a lot of potential uh, economic benefit from offshore wind for both construction and manufacturing and operation and maintenance phases of the project. So at the government level, when there are different proposals, whether it's the Green New Deal or Biden's climate plan or things like that, does the government reach out to companies like Orsted for input? How much open dialogue and collaboration is there? And and would we all benefit from more? Yeah, I mean, you can always do more. We've got a pretty large external affairs and government affairs organization, you can imagine. It is at this stage in its maturity, very much a public-private kind of partnership where the states are, are investing, the federal government's investing, and we're investing. You know, Last week, I had two conversations with two different congressmen. I have a meeting on Friday with the senator. I've spent time with different governors already in my short time, state leaders, you know, state uh, senators, and House members. So we're definitely at the table. We've got pretty good access to those folks that are creating those policies, so both administrations and in Congress. And again, we're kind of goes without saying that we're leaning one way on kind of the election outcome, but we really don't think that offshore wind is a partisan industry. Like we really think that it should appeal to the Republicans and the Trump administration as well, if for nothing else, the economic benefits of the industry. So, And if there are hearts and minds 
to be won as it relates to offshore wind versus some of the other choices that might be available, whether it's onshore wind or solar or nuclear or, I mean, I guess even, you know, coal, natural gas, whatever. Does that lie at the state level? Does that lie with the utilities? You know, is it kind of across the board? And I guess kind of a a related question is just how would you describe the atmosphere in some of these adjacent areas? Is it cutthroat and competitive or people more trying to pick each other up across the industry? It's a good question. I think people are kind of looking out for their own. I mean, we don't really see ourselves competing so much with onshore wind and solar because you can't build onshore wind and solar in a big way in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Jersey. You can do a little, but you can't do a lot. Of course, the entrenched guys are trying to hold on to their livelihood, which makes sense. But in general, these states that where offshore wind is going are lean a little blue anyway. So I think in general, the, the hearts and minds are there. What's interesting is that what we're trying to explain to everyone is that the oil and gas companies in the Gulf states, you know, they're a natural partner for offshore wind. And you see, I don't know if you saw this, but Shell's in offshore wind. BP just made over a billion dollar investment, US offshore wind in one of our competitors' uh, portfolio. So you see the oil and gas majors coming in, but also the oil and gas suppliers, you know, the people who build offshore drilling rigs, the same type of people that could build offshore substations or wind farms. And likewise, the vessels, those are being made. We have like specialized vessels for turbine erection, for example, and you have the Jones Act compliance rule, which means that you can't move anything from one U.S. port to another U.S. port unless it's a U.S. flagged vessel. And we have no Jones Act compliant vessels for turbine installation right now. And so, you know, as this industry gets going, you need to build one or two of those vessels. They're a half a billion dollars each to build. So there's a whole bunch of jobs down in Mississippi and Florida, red states for, and Texas for, Louisiana for, for shipbuilders, for example. You have steel coming from the Midwest. You have engines for the boats coming from Illinois. You have a cable supplier down in South Carolina. So this could translate back into a whole bunch of economic development, not just for the folks, you know, off the coast of X building this wind farm, but for the supply chain, it can go deep into the whole U.S. uh, ecosystem. Great. Yeah, I don't know if I have too many other questions. I guess the one last one is just, can you describe one of these offshore wind farms, if that's the right word? I, I mean, are these actually tethered to the ocean floor or, I mean, I know you said that there's, you know, kind of a mile and, and that there's a bunch of space in between for the fishermen to navigate, but what do they look like and where are they? Yeah. We should hop on a boat and go out to Block Island, Jason, and check out our little project out there. Those are six megawatt turbines, which is pretty big, bigger than any onshore turbine that you would find in Texas or anywhere. But the projects that we're talking about now, we're talking about building kind of 12, 14 megawatt individual turbine sizes, that size. The hub height is 200 meters in the air. The rotor diameter is greater than 200 meters wide. So these are big machines sitting off the coast. Right now, all the ones that we're talking about are, we call them fixed bottom. So they have a a monopile. So a big kind of foundation that you pile drive into the seabed. And then they have a transition piece and then a tower that goes up to the nacelle and then the big blades. And then, like I said, they're spread out pretty widely in in the Northeast and even down the Mid-Atlantic, it's 0.8 by one, so still spread out. We have projects, there's a whole bunch of leases off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. So on the other side of Martha's Vineyard, kind of in between Long Island and Martha's Vineyard, but out to sea. So there'll be quite a bit of big build out out there. 
And there's a small lease area. It's not ours in the kind of the mouth of New York. And then there's some lease areas going down the coast, off the coast of New Jersey, off the coast of Delaware, Maryland, et cetera. And then down into Virginia, North Carolina as well. Dominion Energy is building a big, huge project, 2.6 gigawatt project off the coast of Virginia. And then we expect projects to be built in North Carolina as well. So, and again, they're all kind of sitting in that range of between 15 and 30 miles offshore, I would say out in federal water. But, you know, right now there's not much out there. There's our five turbines in, in Block Island. Those are really close to the island sitting kind of in the bay. And then the two turbine project out in Virginia, it is out in federal water. So it's pretty far out, but it's a pilot uh, ahead of their big project. They're going to build kind of in the 25, 26 time period. So Amazing. Yeah. I would love to take you up on that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. We've still got some work to do to bring the cost down. I mean, I'll admit that right now you still pay a little premium, but it'll come. I have a pretty conservative father-in-law who has a place on Cape Cod and he's like, I love them. I just don't want to pay anything more for my electricity, but the prices will come down and you get a natural hedge. You know, we lock in the price basically for the whole period. So we're not dependent on any fuel source and this is going to happen. It's going to be huge. What do you think the biggest drivers are of that cost and any potential reduction in that cost looking forwards? It's a combination of two things. It's technology advances, which, you know, is what drove the cost down in Europe and and Asia, and it's supply chain advancement. So right now we're for sure paying a premium here because we don't have the supply chain developed and we're either having to ship stuff over or we're doing it at a premium because there's a setup cost over here to get things going. But the technology is going to keep moving and it's, it's already moving at pace. And then we just got to get the supply chain going, but the supply chain will come when we have market certainty. You know, it's just like everything else. So you're not going to convince a lot of people to build big factories over here unless they know that the federal permitting process is going to work and that there's going to be demand, you know, from the states or from whomever. And over time, you know, we've done these uh, corporate PPAs in other parts of the world in Taiwan, we're selling to a big semiconductor manufacturer. In Europe, we've got some other offtake agreements in Germany and elsewhere with corporates that are bypassing the utilities. And we expect that to come here as well as, as the price gets a little more competitive with the market price. So, huh. Yeah. And one of the things that I've found interesting is that there are corollaries. Like if you look at a negative emissions project that's doing one thing, well, you might then look at six other negative emissions projects that are doing wildly different things from each other, but there's a bunch of commonalities in the process, the certification, the transparency, the reporting, the the offset mechanic, the price, like, and then same thing as it relates to the energy mix or PPAs or, so for me, who's kind of looking across these things, it's it's fun to start to pick out some of those trends and then apply the learnings from one area as I evaluate others. The other stacking for you, because you're, you know, I'm kind of a wind energy guy and in my silo, although I'm not, but you're looking at the broader climate. I mean, stuff starts to stack, right? So if you want electric vehicles or an electric heating, you need the electricity to be clean. But then when you go to, to different transport modes, shipping, heavy trucking, planes, et cetera, you want green hydrogen. Again, you need the electrons that are doing the hydrolysis to create the green hydrogen to be green. And so we start to think about, okay, how do we, we're producing a lot of green electrons, then what can we do with those? Well, we can sell them into the grid and get paid for them, or we can use them to do something else, to make hydrogen, for example. We have pilot programs in in Europe with green hydrogen, but we also have pilot programs with green ammonia. Ammonia is used heavily for food production and as a fertilizer, but it's basically a byproduct of fossil fuels, but you can create 
green ammonia with electricity and air and water have green ammonia, for example. So there's a lot of places we can go when we get a lot of green electrons at a low price, right? It, it can really start to make a difference. Yeah, that's one of the most gratifying pieces of what I've been doing is that my focus is 100% climate, but because we need to decarbonize every sector of our global economy and every region across the globe, it, it gives you a license to think about anything and go anywhere, which is daunting, but it's also really intellectually stimulating. And then because you're doing that, you can find these hidden connections and these parallels and connect the dots and like put people together that should be talking or could learn things from each other or technologies that could assist each other or other things that normally wouldn't be made because that connective tissue doesn't typically go in those directions. Yeah. 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 I appreciate your background, your entrepreneur background, tech background, and a lot of folks that listen to these podcasts come from that background. But, you know, some of us big business guys, we can use your help too. We can use the ingenuity and creativity you know, in our team. We're going to continue to be building out our team here. We've got a kind of a business development group that's looking at this next gen stuff and what do we need to do. And so as folks get excited about this opportunity to be a part of this big green offshore wind industry, I'm open, doors open. So, Well, one final question is just for anyone listening to the show, who do you want to hear from? How can we help you? I still think it's something I always say when I try to talk to people in a, with a broad background is that, you know, the consumers still matter. People still can drive behaviors of companies. And so if we decide that we are only going to buy shoes that are made sustainably, then we can put a lot of pressure on Nike. And then, you know, Nike then needs to react to maybe buy some offshore wind or, or whatever. And, and that's a, maybe a super simple example, but we need that demand. We need those people that recognize that climate change is real to speak up about it and do something about it. But I'm also always looking for talent in kind of the commercial area. We've got a lot of complexity in setting up a supply chain and dealing with all the different stakeholders that we have. So I think there's a, a lot of uh, opportunity there and the project development side. And of course, with, with innovation and, and engineering that we're a developer. So a lot of that innovation and engineering is happening within our supply chain, I would say. But but we do a lot ourselves as well. And the integration of all the different pieces and parts, there's opportunity. So, so I don't know, maybe that's not a direct enough answer, but anybody who's got a good idea wants to pitch me something, I'm, I'm open. So Great. And anything I didn't ask that you wish I did or any parting words for listeners? No, I just appreciate the opportunity to join you, Jason. And I hope people see that this is coming. It's long cycle. It's big infrastructure. So it's not going to be tomorrow, but we're expecting within... A year, 18 months, we're starting the construction of it. And, and by 23, 24, have quite a bit of spinning assets out, out at sea. So it's going to be a pretty fun time to look back and see how much progress we make. So I'm really looking forward to watching it evolve. And I can't thank you enough for making the time to come on the show. And it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot as well. Thank you. All right. Great. Thanks, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. 
The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.